God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, accord and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I'll pray for us, buddy. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day that we can have church together and listen to the word. And thank you for my dad and as he preaches the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Told him all he had to pray is that Jonathan can preach well. That's uh, so, how sweet. All right, Titus 2, 11 through 15. Jesus is worth it. Have you ever found yourself in a space where that phrase answers the questions you've been asking, right? And sometimes our lives are lived in such a way that we need the reminder, Jesus is worth it. And I struggled this week to find the right way to ease into the text, right? I was like thinking, what cute story could I tell you to engage you and bring you into Titus 2? Or what contrast with the world could we clearly stake out and build a case against in light of what's been preached in Titus? Or what hero could we elevate to inspire us that we could live like that person? I wondered if this was a question then also of identity. So maybe we could have talked about identity or maybe something more to ramp us into the text. But I kept just coming back to the cost of following Jesus. Because following Jesus is tremendously costly. It will actually take everything that you've got. And I don't mean merely economically, though your finances will be reprioritized if you follow Jesus. But I mean, like holistically, like all of who you are in every category of life, in your vocation, in your relationships, in your dreams, in your leisure, in every category, you name it, following Jesus will cost you. And to be honest, at times it will be more than you are willing to give right? Where our moment of history declares the self as center of all things, that which must be cherished or prioritized or made even to be a God. Christianity actually comes and says something dramatically different. And what it says is good, but it will take everything that you've got and then some. It's not a new story, for us or history, right? Humanity from the earliest moment chose self over creator. History is just the story of image bearers of God bumbling around trying to be God themselves. By doing so, then they were storing up wrath against sin for missing the mark of God's way of what he declared was right and good. And as a Remedy to the tragedy of the human story, the great God and Savior, Jesus, came himself into humanity and into our experience. And in that appearing, lived always hitting the mark for us, obediently before the Father. And he gave his life to bridge the divide and to grant us identity and real life in him. 
And there were always then been a remnant of people clinging to this truth and living in light of it. And they've been given scripture as an anchor for us to keep us in this reality and show us what life can actually look like surrendered to Christ. And Titus is just such a scripture for us. And last week we encountered this gospel living, this idea of sobriety of mind, self-control, and care for each other that are all marks of the Christian life, that everybody has a role to play in the kingdom. And we talked about why we live that way, right? And it's to adorn the gospel, that people would see our lives and see the gospel that we live in light of as beautiful. And today we are meant to see how we can live this way. So holding before us first the grace that trains and then the hope that sustains, my goal is that when we realize the cost of following Jesus, we will also realize that he is worth it because he is good. So grace that trains. This is what we get from this section of Titus 2. And I just want us to think about how we approach grace as a people, as individuals, as a church. And we know it to be unmerited favor, right? You are given what you do not and could never deserve. And God gives us that grace. And it's a promise of redemption, of belonging, of new identity as a people that we could never earn. And that idea of grace saturates all of scripture. And it actually becomes a covenant with those who believe in Jesus and his blood that was shed for us on the cross. One writer says, grace is the basis of the Christian faith, and we believe we are saved by faith through grace, and God's grace is usually defined as undeserved favor. Grace cannot be earned. It is something that is freely given, and we count on God's grace and the bridge he built in our relationship with him. So because of Christ's sacrifice, it's a gift of Um, righteousness of forgiveness and relationship with our creator which we are meant for and in the church we rightly see then as grace is the instrument of forgiveness for us of inheritance it's that which saves us and which secures us even when we go on sinning then it also covers us and that's all true but here grace does more right Here, Paul makes clear that it, it in fact, brings salvation. Jesus, in his first appearing, brought salvation. He rescues us from death, from the slavery to sin. This is redemption for us, and we rejoice in this rescue. It's one of our core values as a church, that we have been rescued by Jesus. But this grace also changes us. Did you see that? The, The appearing of grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So we're rescued and then given a life to live. We're brought out of a life of death and brought into a life of eternal living. And we're taught to say no to wickedness and the passions of the world, that the world declares all those things we should just run after, that that's what should define you. Go after those things and Paul tells us no, grace tells us to say no to those things and yes to something that is better. And you have to understand this is costly. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take denying. 
And we see it in Jesus' invitation to disciples that would follow after him, specifically in Mark 8. He says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus, couldn't you just stick with come to me all who are weary and heavy laden? No, he doesn't sound like that, but that's softer. But when you come with your burdens and your struggles and the difficulty of life, you have to know that the goodness is found as you're given grace and then deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. I thought about it for a second. You know, we got bumper stickers. They're really great decals it's just the letters that end up on your car it's very clean and gets people right to our website christians always like i don't do bumper stickers for jesus would you no i'm just kidding she's like that's for you that's not for jesus okay but deny yourself is not an ideal bumper sticker right have, have you anybody ever seen a bumper sticker that says deny yourself have you ever seen a christian mug that says deny yourself and take up your cross Right now, it's always softer stuff, right? Goose does? Well, of course he would. Because he, yeah, he gets it, right? But that's actually where true life is found. Jesus is telling us by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, experience his grace that actually transforms us. And the grace of Christ will change us. And it does so as we let go of the things that the world says we need to hold on to. I mean, you want to be called hateful. You want to be called a radical. Just tell people that the way they are choosing to live should actually just be set aside for something vastly different and better and following after this character that we call King Jesus, right? But it's training, it's progressing in us, it's increasing, helping us increasingly reject ungodliness and worldly passions. And that doesn't sell to the big crowd. But God's grace in the gospel does not merely save us from sin. It, in fact, teaches us in the inner person, and it transforms our outward life. It works just like a parent would, instructing a child with nurture, encouragement, information, and when needed, discipline. But that's the grace of Christ for us. And it's this element of training, though, that we're a little unfamiliar with, that actually makes us as grace people a little bit uncomfortable. Because we understand getting grace wrong when we think that we can uh, have to renounce things and then we'll get grace, right? That's not it. Like, we're clear about that. But grace comes as a gift freely to us. And you all know I love the thick application of grace. Right? Peterson Donuts, everybody said, oh, they're the, we're having Donut Graham today from Escondido. Best donuts in Escondido. And everybody says, oh, no, you got to have Peterson's. No, 
they put on way too much frosting, right? It's, I, didn't, I wanted a donut, not a cake, right? But opposite that, I love the thick application of grace. The, this is where I'm a liberal. You're all worried I'm a liberal. I'm a liberal applier of the grace of Christ, right? I need it thickly in my life. No one is too far gone. No sin is too great that the grace of Jesus can't handle it. Amen. And truth be told, I am a grace junkie. We, our last ministry, we used to have, we had shirts even said grace junkie. And those little young adults ran around with that and then sinned and they shouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pastor, but what about grace? God bless them. They're mostly saved now. But I need that. And that's just my experience, right? I need the thick application in my in my life and regular application of it but there can be a denial of grace if we see it as permitting or giving a pass to the pursuit of desires that jesus has deemed unhealthy and ungodly for us it's actually a cheapening of grace got a very long quote from dietrich bonhoeffer in his book the cost of discipleship about Uh, cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on to say, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. He says, above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So often we kind of joke, you know, we see little stickers, you are enough, right? And the reformed piece of us is like, you're not enough, you need Jesus, right? But Jesus saw you and he said you were worth it to give of himself, to extend his arms, to let his blood drain from his body. And it's not as if he did that just for maybe some people in the future will choose to follow me. He did it knowing exactly your frame. He said, you were worth it. He invites us to a life now that says he is worth it. 
This covenant of grace will inspire in us sacrifice, surrender to the way of Christ, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and saying yes to living what Paul describes here, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in our present age. And any notion of grace that fails to turn sinners away from evil is not the grace of God that is taught by Paul. One pastor says, we are to say no to worldly passions, and this means we are to deny ourselves not only external conduct that betrays God, but also similar internal impulses, what the King James Version simply describes as lusts. In other versions, variously translate as worldly appetites, desires, or cravings. There's no question that sexual compulsions are included in the term but there's also concern here about anger, hatred, ambition, and other urges that result in uncontrolled speech or behavior. But grace ensures freedom not only from sin's punishment, but also from its power. And the grace of God is the removal not only of the judgment, but also the power of sin. Grace, therefore, enables us as sinners to live righteously in the present age, to live as the saints that he has called us to be. And Jesus died to secure not only forgiveness for his people, but also their faithfulness. And Christ takes every idol of culture, sex, power, money, and all the rest, and requires that they all bow before him. And if those idols are beginning to control our thoughts, actions, and anticipations, then we are bowing before them and missing what we're called to. But it's by grace that we learn our way beyond idolatry, beyond sin, beyond unhealthy desire, and in it you taste something that is far sweeter than what the world promises. And don't lose heart, friends, uh, if you find yourself far off from this. Like there, there's moments like I feel like I can't renounce ungodliness. It just happens. But you're given time to live this life because it's grace. One of my favorite local theologians, Lawrence Lorne, said this about being trained by grace. He, is he hiding? He's hiding. He says, it doesn't mean that I'm just over it and the power to defeat sin makes it easy to do so. I must be trained in it, and training implies a change over time. Something refined and molded and crafted, habits and desires formed for good, and it means when I falter, it's not the failure of grace, but a sharp reminder that the training must continue. The practice of knocking on that door of grace must be a perpetual pilgrimage that we are not too haughty or too honorable to go to. And it's not an invitation to forego that either. To train is to put effort into seeking and submitting to grace and both sides a perpetual journey that lasts a lifetime. This is what Jesus invites us to. This is what costs so much and clinging to the trustworthy word of redemption becomes then and stokes in us an affection for Jesus that is expulsive in nature. It becomes greater than the lesser desires and it motivates us to the life that is described here in Titus. We come godly not for gain, but from 
the gift of salvation. We live between the appearings of grace, the it is finished of the cross and the it is done of Revelation 21. And Jesus is purifying a people of his own possession that are zealous for good works. And that's us. Godliness is not a consequence of human resolution or willpower. It is a relationship with God that results in life that honors him. It's going to him for strength, for purpose, for the power to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Another Asian theologian who's not Lawrence wrote, God's grace disciplines believers to live just and godly lives in the present by beckoning them to look back at Christ's first coming and forward to his second coming. When Paul speaks of the saving grace of God that has appeared in verse 11, he's referring to Christ's first manifestation that climaxed in his death and resurrection. By virtue of our union with Christ, his death was our death, his resurrection our resurrection, and as such, we have, to, or we have died to sin and have been liberated from its rule. As we look back at what Christ has accomplished, the fitting response is to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, things that characterize our former existence in the realm of sin and death. And I add, as we look forward to his return, the fitting response is to live for his glory with hope, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. Both backward and forward. And that's how grace trains us. This grace makes it then all worth it to be rejected by the world, to be thought less of for pursuing these things. And even though Christians are not yet what they will be in the age to come. God's grace nevertheless has transforming effects on the sinner's character in advance of that day. Grace does not produce perfection in this, this life, but it does decisively change the direction of the sinner's life. All of our lives are a testament to that, to that reality, that trajectory of hope that we live under. And godliness, as one writer says, in all the areas of life that the apostle specifies for instruction about grace will prove terribly costly. And what can ignite sufficient zeal for such priorities and purposes? And the answer, he says, is overwhelming love for him who gave himself for us. And I'll add to that with Paul. What gets us there, keeps us there, is a hope that sustains. You see that in verse 13 and 14? We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you ever interact with somebody and say, well, you know, the early church didn't think Jesus was really God. If you ever just throw Titus at him and say, shut up, right? Paul says he is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we, as his people now, are actively waiting, eager for his return to be with Jesus, to see him face to face. You guys, before I really knew Jesus, I grew up in the church. And, that, you know, we were a pre-millennial dispensationalist. We wanted the rapture to come on. And every time I heard that, I was like, no, but I, I kind of want to live first. 
And then I got saved, and I'm like, okay, I've been living. Jesus, come on back, you know. And it's like, I want to see my children mature. I want to walk my daughters down the aisle. I want to see Ewan preach his first sermon. I want to see Iona preach her first sermon. <laughs> Scandalous. Watch out. John, don't email me. Right? <laughs> it won't be in this church. No. Right? And so I want to do all those things of life, but I long to be with Jesus. The one who will wipe away every tear, who will embrace us, who we will know, oh my gosh, he was worth it in that moment. Just a little bit of that hope is like nuclear fission for us. It keeps us, and now we're actively waiting for his return, for the end of death and sin, for restoration of all things in him. And this is the hope that sustains us when things get hard. Because they will get hard. And this is the glory that gets us through, that all of this, the perseverance, the sacrifice we make, it is all worth it to belong to Jesus and witness his appearing. So the Christian life is not just a function of becoming what we already are in Christ. It is also motivated by the unlying God's promise of eternal life and material bliss in the new heavens and new earth. Thus we live devoid of guilt and we are overwhelmed and uh, with excitement because the best is yet to come truly for all of eternity. And we don't even know. I've had conversations like, John Economies and I are talking, well, you know, where it's always best to have breakfast overlooking the ocean. But we talk about, you know, we think the new heavens and the earth is just like exploratory. Like we just keep seeing the wonders of creation and what God has done. You know, I'm fine if we're just a choir singing all the time, right? And so we can imagine and just think of what it can be, but it's all wrapped up in this hope of being with our creator. As Revelation says, he, we will have no need for the sun, S-U-N, because the S-O-N will be our illumination for all of life. And how glorious will that be? Yeah. We get glorified bodies too. I'll be fat and it won't matter. I'll glow. I don't know if you glow, but I hope I glow. <laughs> that's, that has nothing to do with it. But in that hope, that's the, actually the way we live, right? Anchored in hope from an encounter with Jesus, longing for more of him. And the knowledge that our God is coming is supposed to create expectancy in believers that stimulates faithfulness in our daily endeavors and it grants us perseverance in times of trial. So grace transforms us, it teaches us, and this hope keeps us and pushes us onward in godliness and in renouncing everything in the world. Because Christ is coming, we desire now to live in fidelity, faithful to him, and knowing that he will deliver us from trial and will vanquish all of his and our enemies, we can live in faithfulness to him now. What Titus in the church is to proclaim is this truth with boldness, right? It's the basis for the encouragement and the rebuke that comes in the church. It's a hope that shapes our lives so that no one will disregard us. 
It's hope that invites us to live for something better than fleeting desires, than false identities or the whims of idols of our age. And this hope, friends, is our dynamite. Does that go back? Do you know where that's from? What reference is that? Moving on. What was the name of that show? Was it? Okay. Good times? I'm having great times with Jesus. Watch out. The Jeffersons, that's it. No? We'll fight about this later over donuts. Dynamite. But he was a character in the show. But either way, let's just say it the regular pro- dynamite. Um, Grace, this hope, this hope is our dynamite. Why do you all let me preach? It's our fuel. It is our power to live. Right? And hope is not wishful thinking. It is confident expectation that God will do as he has promised. Oh, I had a great time um, on this little retreat. It was with some other Flourish pastors. So those of you going through Flourish, Josh Rose was there from Emmanuel Faith and my good friend Matt Bohannon, who's pastors New Hope Community Church in Escondido. If you'll remember, not last week, but months ago, he and his wife and two sons came is they, everybody ends sabbatical at Reservoir, right? They come and sit. And Matt is, um, he's a different personality than me. And he's a Sooners fan, which was terrible for him yesterday. They lost. But we used to be rivals, Nebraska and Oklahoma, so I could talk trash. But we, we're, what am I, where am I going with this? Confidence. So we were talking about my willingness to argue with people about politics. And it's like, well, it's because I know I'm right. Um, or other things of things of the faith. And I was like, Matt, truly, it's, you know, it's part of my personality. Some of it could be arrogance, which I have to watch and be careful with. But the good part of my confidence in life and ministry is Jesus. That because he's promised, because he has given his self for me that is more than sufficient, that now he is worth it and he calls me to life under the banner of this hope. How can I not be confident? Oh, but you pastor a small church. If that's what the Lord wants, I'm, we all eat. We're fine. You know, oh, but you're not influential. Psh, I got three lives and I'm working on a fourth that will listen to me one day. That's <laughs> just good. Whoa, now I'm in trouble. There's wine, honey. It's fine. They love us. (laughs) Don't be given to much wine. We just read that last week. But like we should be like like, humbly confident people. Like not confident that we have everything right or we've got it all. But Jesus has us. That from his justification of us, I don't care what you say about me. Like, it's okay, we can, we can have some disagreement, we can talk through theology, all those things are great, but I, am, I belong to Jesus. It says in this text, he's created for himself a people of his own, what? Possession, I belong to him. What can you do to me? That's not in my notes, but you needed it. And Paul often uses this term of hope to refer to Christ's uh, return and the renewal of all things that will accompany that Return. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading. The, you know, Flourish has four chapter gospel. I got five. Restoration. It's coming, right? 
And it includes our own resurrection from the dead. As he says, I love it, Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's better than Kevlar, friends. Can't nothing penetrate that. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, which is training us and changing us, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Woo! That's so good. Hope for the deliverance we will know at Christ's return in the renewed presence of the deliverer himself who will bring those blessings, he who is the hope of glory. And we give our lives for this. And it's worth it because Jesus made clear you were worth it when he gave himself to redeem you. So friends, if you remember nothing else, remember Jesus is worth it. What do we do with a text like this? Just live this life, right? Pursue godliness, self-control, uprightness, and in community we can help each other there, encourage one another, rebuke one another, do whatever that timer told you you need to do. Pray. (laughs) That's like... Jonathan has preached long enough. That's his timer. But as you live this life, point each other to Jesus and just live in his way. We're not going to get it perfect. We're not meant to get it perfect, but we are meant to be trained by this grace and live in this hope of his return. And so we live this way and then we stay tethered to hope. Sink the anchor of your life deeply into the grace of Christ, that which saves you and trains you, both his first appearing and his soon coming appearing, that you are his and he has given you a life to live. Hear it, read it, and repeat it. And ask the Spirit to douse you with this hope, to fill your heart with the love of God, that his word promises, that Jesus would be your treasure, that you would truly live this week i was reflecting on a conversation with a friend who had sacrificed career community and security to proclaim the grace of christ and in a particularly hard time she asked herself and others if jesus was really worth it and eventually she could only answer yes There is no other savior. There is no better way, no better life. And it is costly, but this life is good because Jesus is worth it. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, 
but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope is that... Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Jesus is worth it. His grace trains us and transforms us, and he's coming again. May our lives declare this hope for his glory and our good. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its declaration of lives of transformation and for existence as your people, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and instead running to you and living in hope. Help us to do that in light of of who you are, what you've done, and the fact that you're coming again soon. Lord, make us agents of hope in our day that others would see. They'd learn to savor you as we do and give all of who we are to you. In Jesus' name, amen.